This is Seba, the Southern Fried Witch, and I am here today with my good friend, Reed. Reed, you want to say hi? Hello. In the green room, so to speak, as we were talking and laughing and getting ready to go, Reed's accent started coming out. <laughs> yep. <laughs> because you were actually raised in the Appalachias of the United States, correct? Yeah, I was born in Ohio. Uh, Chillicothe, Ohio, so in the foothills of Appalachia, or nice. Appalachia. <laughs> Either way, it depends on how you pronounce it. That tells you where you're from, you know. Right, of course, of course. And you are now in Luxembourg? I am indeed, yes. Uh, for those who don't know, because I didn't know before I went to Europe, uh, Luxembourg is a very tiny country about the size of Rhode Island with perhaps a quarter of the population of Rhode Island. We have less than a million people here. I think it's close to, close to half a million. In fact, I think it's half a million during the day because a lot of people commute into this country to work for the day and then wow. they leave to France or Germany either was. Um, but yeah, uh, I am living here. I've been in Europe in general about seven years. And before that, in the United States, I've lived in Ohio, I've lived in the, the Northeast, New England, that area, and uh, I lived most of my life in the United States in Seattle. Right. And we shared a friend, and that's one of the ways we sort of connected is through that friend who moved from Alabama to Seattle. And we're yep. all friends today, and I think that's really nice. Hi, so friend, if you're listening. Oh, yeah. Friend is listening. <laughs> hey, Justin. <laughs> hey, Justin. Congratulations on your upcoming wedding. Yay. Woo. Can't wait to see Seattle, too, on my end. I thought I missed Seattle, but I, I don't. But Seattle was a good place to live in uh, for most of the time I was there. So you'll enjoy it. Yeah. I'm afraid of planes, by the way, but I'm going to have to go. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Me, too. Well, <laughs> yeah, and you need to do yourself a huge favor. Um, in Seattle, there is a artisanal donut company called Top Pot. This is not a commercial spot for them or anything, but you need to get one of their donuts. Justin can help you out with that. My sister oh, wow. was just in Seattle a little while ago, and she got my husband and I some donuts, took them on the plane for us, because uh, she knew it was my favorite thing about Seattle. So my husband got to have a Top Pot. Boston cream donut for the first time in his life. And now oh, he yum. desperately wants more. They're amazing. <laughs> You're gonna have to fly to Seattle one of these days. But maybe Yeah, not or you could soon. just send me you could just send me some donuts. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> I will. So can you tell people about yourself that don't already know? Because a lot of new witches listen to my podcast. Um, a lot of solitary folk. So can you tell them a little bit about yourself? Yeah, happy to. Well, first of all, hi, new witches. Congratulations. <laughs> that's, that's always cool to get into this stuff. So, let's see, my name is Reed Wildermuth. I am uh, just 46. I turned 46 a couple of weeks ago. Or, uh, excuse me, last week. <laughs> or was it this week? I, it, it was recent. 
<laughs> um, let's see. I've been a practicing pagan for about 20 years. I am a writer. I uh, am also the co-founder and the director of publishing of Gods and Radicals Press, which is a pagan anti-capitalist uh, publisher and website. We, we've done about 30, 36, 37 books, something like that. And yeah, I, I've written, let's see, seven books. Six have been published. The seventh one's about to come out from a UK publisher in September. And I write uh, on Substack and I have uh, my own podcast uh, called The Realign. And yeah. Oh, and more specifically, I'm not, I, I wouldn't call myself a witch, though, you know, I, I definitely do magic and, and resonate pretty well with witchcraft, but if I'm going to identify as anything, I identify as a druid. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I have your book being pagan right here. I got it, you know, when it first came out and it's laying right here and I was pouring back over it this morning. But what I don't know is what your new book is going to be about. Oh, uh, that's that's actually um, it, it's it's kind of my first political book. It's being published by a leftist publisher in the UK called Repeater Press. The book is called Here Be Monsters, and it's a bit about, uh, well, actually, the subtitle of the book is probably the best uh, way to describe the book. It's uh, Here Be Monsters, How to Fight Capitalism Instead of Each Other. So that's it in a very short nutshell. Yeah. Yeah. As a witch in Alabama, in the middle of Alabama, I think I'm the only person I ever hear talking about fighting capitalism, consumerism, commercialism, <laughs> you know, the three big C's and, and, uh, it's kind of lonely down here. <laughs> yeah, sure. Sure. You, sure. Yeah. can understand. I um, can definitely but, imagine that. I mean, that doesn't mean that, that everybody there is specifically pro capitalism. Oftentimes what happens is we don't even understand what is happening to us. And uh, we, we don't really have the name to describe, you know, the reason why, wait, you know, I can't find a job. My partner or my child can't get health care. You know, we don't normally have the words for that or not everybody does. So, you know, I, I'm sure Alabama is definitely full of people who don't like capitalism if they were to understand what it is. Right. But the word is so embedded in their political schema. Yeah. Yeah. Decades and decades of anti-communist, anti-socialist right. propaganda in the United States made sure that a lot of people are afraid to even think that way. Or out of the box altogether. Yeah. Right. And I think you know that I have a small micro farm here in Alabama. Yes, is, um, yes. CNG certified. And uh, our hope, um, well, specifically my dream, is to get this little place to the point where I can become a teaching farm. That's, that's really cool. Well, there's so many processes outside of just not using pesticides and herbicides. Um, there's so many processes outside of that that we need to consider if we're going to have a mm -hmm. holistic relationship with the land. And it's not taught around here. Um, oh, sure, sure, sure. You know, caring about the runoff to the neighbor's pond for instance, um, right. uh, things like that, whether or not I use bleach in my washing machine that then is going to go into my septic tank, that is then you, you get the idea. Oh, yeah, so, yeah. 
Um, we are very micro though, Reed. We are 1.29 acre. Okay. And trying to show that you can grow enough food to subsist, um, other than, you know, if you have to have sugar and coffee. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> Which, you know, sorry, I'm lame, I do. But <laughs> most of our food coming from a closed loop system, which is really a sexy way of saying that we're respecting the land um, mm -hmm. and not pulling in a lot of stuff. And by the way, this does help to fight capitalism. And that's what I wanted to talk to you about today, actually. So I wanted to talk to you about what I'm doing and what other people are doing, gardening, farming, call it what you want, um, mm -hmm. and how that can be magical resistance in and of itself. Mm, mm. Yeah, I'd love to talk about that. Yeah. Um, uh, well, first okay. of all, I, I wanted to bring up real quick. Uh, I, I I have a lot of friends who are doing something very similar to what you're doing, oh, and cool. on similar amounts of land. Um, the The big place uh, that that I know that this is happening right now is in Eastern Germany. After the the fall of East Germany, a lot of the land got. Uh, you know, it fell apart, got disused, no one was taking care of it. So it became really cheap. And a lot of people who have been fleeing from the cities, like even Berlin, which is, by the way, an amazing city. But I have I have a lot of friends, most of them older gay guys who have just like, no, I'm I'm done with the I'm done with the the cool gay party city. I want to go grow stuff. Mm. And uh and I have one friend who has I think probably about the same amount of land as you and that is the only that that is the only problem that he has. He's like, yeah, I, I can I can make everything I want, but if I want coffee and sugar, I still have to import it. So you're not alone in that. Yeah, and we do we do make concessions and say we have to be honest about the ones we're making too. Um, sure, and 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 I think as well, the exchange of a of a few food commodities, especially something like coffee, which can survive for a very long time and can be transported. You know, the world has always been like that. The problem is that those exchanges have become part of the capitalist system so that the people who are growing it, they're not exchanging directly with you. They're exchanging through multiple layers of middlemen, uh, through dis distributors, through massive capitalist corporations that own most of the coffee production in the world. They don't get to exchange directly. They, they can't just call you up and say, hey, you know, I'm I'm in South America. I've got my coffee harvest coming. Can I send you some of it? You know, they, can't, <laughs> right. they, they, they can't easily do that, but that's how it would have been because then it would have been, hey, what are you growing? Okay, do you have honey? Do you have this? Do you have that? Like, oh yeah, can you send me some of that? And then we'll mm -hmm. just call it a fair trade. But, mm -hmm. you know, we, we don't have that option right now. Well, yeah. we do. It's just there's so much arrayed against us trying to do that. And then we often forget that that was ever the way that the world worked. I agree. You know, I'm I'm stuck on this word farming anyway, Reed. I wanted to bring that up with you because I am writing a book about this um, halfway through. Okay. Have my publisher. Not ready to announce, you know, the, the title, but I am working on this right now. And I found myself, as you know, an English prof, right? Mm -hmm. And I know you love words too. I've, I've heard you on interviews. You love words and getting <laughs> to the base of that and finding what the historicity is. And mm -hmm. uh, farm is, farm and farmer are problematic. Um, mm -hmm. I mean, it's, you know, based on the French, uh, I'm going to butcher this with my accent, ferme. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, yep. I'm ruining that word. But. Yeah, to close off. 
Right. Or a fixed um, account or Mm -hmm. it all lands in, in things like money and financial capital and really, I think, pre capitalistic uh capitalism for lack of a better way to put it so it's a bothersome word and i remember when we first tried to file as a farm and the more research i did on it the more problematic the term and all of that baggage that came with it became for me because i found that in the united states you have to earn one thousand dollars off of your farm in order to you know call yourself such uh, the problem with that is that a lot of farmers do trade. They do. Sure. And, yeah. and it's, a, you know, it's a decent way to make a living um, and to keep your family safe. But at the same time, it just feels like, well, it automatically d- just strips anything sacred or sustainable out of the whole concept when that is all it means is this, uh, this money and nothing else. You cannot call yourself a farmer if you are mm. raising five acres of food of any kind and then selling it for $800 to people that are in need. You cannot. And well, you won't get any, I know, and you will not get any of those uh, tax breaks on everything you have to, to pay to go into that. So it's already problematic for me, Reed. Sure, um, sure, yeah. And if I could come up I, with a better word, <laughs> go ahead. Well, okay, so this is kind of fun. Um, it, it doesn't seem directly related, but it is. Did you know that the word wife in its original old Germanic Anglo-Saxon context did not refer to a woman? What? Yeah, this is great. Oh, wow. I missed this. And, and, and you can kind of, kind of catch a little bit of this with the idea of midwife. So the wifery, to be a wife, was to be someone who took care of a household and also of the land around it. (gasps) Now, of course, this generally tended to be women, but it wasn't always women. Um, So being a wife or wifery uh, was the sense that you were caring for and tending and giving birth to things on the land and in your household. And, and so the idea of midwife actually comes from that. It, it's not that, you know, she's a woman because you can be a male midwife as well. It was that you were someone who was helping tend and bring about the process of a birth. So I, I'm not suggesting that you call it wifery, but there, there are lots of ancient options that one can use for, um, for that, that actually never even had gendered associations in the first place. Later on, it, it became that, well, you know, a husband needs a wife. But then husbandry was also, that was the person who was taking care of the animals and the rest of that. So wow. that's why we still have the idea of animal husbandry. And it just, it came about eventually, mostly because of Christianity, that someone who was doing husbandry was male and someone who was doing wifery was female. But those words themselves never specifically indicated one sex or the other. And it's interesting too, if you, if you think about like most of the, you know, a lot of words related to marriage and, and that sort of thing derived from farming. You know, we've always 
ever since we started growing plants in one place, you know, we've, we've always kind of come up with words for that and, and roles for who was doing what, because, you know, dividing labor, like, you know, on your farm, you cannot do absolutely everything yourself. You know, there always has to be someone else to help. And, and then what is their role? What are they doing? But yeah, there, there are other things like uh, groom originally came from that. There, there are a lot of other words as well. But um, as far as what could replace farming, maybe part of the problem as well with the word farming is, is that it's so associated with modern industrial agriculture. Oh, so yeah. that someone who's got a small you know, homestead, as it were, like you or, or, or a lot of my friends, they would be called farmers, but so then too would someone who owns thousands and thousands of acres and is just using machines to grow one crop every year and then selling that in bulk to, you know, ConAgra or one of those other com- uh, companies in order to then get processed into Cheerios or other cereal. So, you know, there's different levels of scale and what you're doing is absolutely or at least qualitatively different from what one of these major, you know, farmers, quote unquote, are doing. And yet we only have one word that we really use in English any longer. Yeah, it doesn't fit, though. Um, Yeah. Because there couldn't be a wider gulf between what I'm doing and what, a you know, a large big ag in Alabama is doing. Exactly, exactly. One takes from the land, one works with the land. Right. And that that actually, when I started doing the work I'm doing, it all began innocently enough, you know? When we think we're doing enough as pagans or witches or whatever we are, or just, you know, a person who is attempting to fight climate change, you know, on a micro level. It just sort of started kind of naively and innocently for me. <laughs> I thought, you know, I don't want to put chemicals on the land. You know, I don't want to ruin the climate. That's how this relationship with this land started for me. But it went in such a very deep, uh, very profound, down a pathway I did not see coming. uh, Because the land started to speak. (laughs) Sure. Yeah. You know, it started to talk to me and uh, I started to have conversations with the land. And the first thing I would say that's different about what I'm doing and like what um, Big Ag is doing is that I try very hard to reconsider my position. Let's call me a midwife, a midwife of vegetables. Okay, Mm -hmm. call me that for a minute. I'm not in charge of the birth. (laughs) Yeah. I'm not lording over, it's not my grand, uh, uh, you know, I get an award for what I've done here. I'm not colonizing. I'm not trying to, um, I hear a lot of times farmers talk about the word manage, you know, they use the word manage the land, Mm. manage the soil. Mm. I'm not doing that. When I stopped fucking around here, Reed, the land started to heal. I'm not making that up. I know I sound like oh. an old hippie, but no, I, I understand exactly what you're talking about. Yeah, it, it's know, funny I... you you bring up the management thing, and and this is actually something that will be in my upcoming book, but it's also something that I mentioned in being pagan as well. I think the the best way to describe capitalism and also in general our modern Western way of living. Mm -hmm. is a management ethic that we believe everything 
should and can be managed. So, you know, we can manage rivers to make them more productive. We can manage people to make them more productive. We can manage ourselves to, to make us make ourselves better workers or whatever. We treat everything as if we are managers because we are also treated by managers, you know, as something to be managed. All of the rough, all of the wild, all of the, all of the more artistic, all of the more, you know, sauvage would be the word in French, which is both wild and uncivilized. Mm-hmm. Um, all of those things need to be managed. And, and when you're managing lands, you're, you're acting as if it's, you know, almost like it's a spoiled child or a crying baby or, or, or something like that, as opposed to something that exists for itself, has its own desires, has its own, you know, it, its own wishes, and is more than happy to work with someone who is willing to work with it as it is, as opposed to chaining it up, digging it all up, uh, throwing in chemicals to try to make everything grow faster because you want to grow, you want to grow something that will make you lots of money and you don't care that this damages the, the quality of the soil and the, the watershed around you, you know? Um, so I, I'm glad you, you brought up the word manage because that's, that I think is exactly the problem that we see, not just in our relationship to the land, but our relationship to our, each other, our, our relationship to climate change. You know, right now, uh, the majority of even the leftist or liberal uh, statements about climate change is that we can manage this crisis, that if we just manage what certain people are buying or if we manage our carbon credits or, or whatever, then we can not even fix the crisis, but manage it so that, you know, maybe we can profit off of it. There's a really good book that just came out from my friend Dugald Hine. I think it was released last week. That's a bit on the subject. It's, it's called At Work in the Ruins. And that, that's one of his major points that this management ethic is really what has gotten us into this problem in the first place. And we're not going to be able to get out of this problem if we keep trying to manage it as if it's, you know, as if the earth is an unruly child or a hysterical woman that we need to just make do what we want to do. This is exactly what I think that this working with the earth, um, call it farming, call it gardening, has so much to teach us on a a larger scale. For instance, um, we stop tilling. Now, I know there's, and thankfully, there is a no-till revolution going on right now in the United States, but not big enough. <laughs> and when we stopped tilling, we stopped, you know, um, I'm looking for a word I can use, degrading the soil, ripping all of its nutrients out, then shoving back in synthetic nutrients to mm-hmm. make up for mm-hmm. what we fucking did. It's, uh, it's a real insane process doing that. So we stopped doing that and instead started giving the earth, and I can be very specific, a tiny plot and then adding in at the end of a season, four inches of, you know, organic matter, which the earth is like, thank you for this gift. (laughs) Thank you. Mm -hmm. How, How lovely of you. I did give you food. Thank you for my gift. Right. And then next year going again, but being very gentle, doing all these other processes that you would see in the forest anyway. And I know you love a good forestry where Mm -hmm. there's intercropping. 
companion planting, uh, things that are good for the soil, while there are things that are going to give you food in return. I started adding mycelium to my bed, so I now get edible mushrooms as well. And oh, it great, just keeps, great. yeah, isn't that cool? And it just, it's what the earth would have already been if I hadn't have been out there diddling with it, for lack of a, <laughs> a better way to put it. <laughs> super healthy, super alive. And I'm sorry, I don't think sentient's the right word because I think it's just way wiser than sentient. Um, <laughs> yes. If, if that made any sense to you. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. But um, I do think that, uh, you know, I guess I would ask you, how do you see someone who's doing the little bitty tiny work I'm doing? I'm not out there protesting. I'm not doing the heavy lifting at, at all. But I am over here on this tiny little, it's not, I hate the word property because what a load of shit is that? <laughs> I, I mean, that term only helps me out to keep others from bringing in their, you know, old tires and trash. So it's like, okay, right, out. Right, right. But how do you see this as actually mattering in the greater scheme of things? Because I'm not I, the only one doing it. Go ahead. Yeah. No, there's definitely a lot, even if you don't get to see them directly where you are. I've talked to so many people doing something very similar, uh, both here in Europe and then back in the United States as well. Like in, in Seattle, a lot of activists, and, and this is really interesting, a lot of activists who were involved in, you know, say, Occupy or also the Black Lives Matters protest, they had shifted away from the street protests into community gardening. Near where I had lived, there was an old abandoned parking lot, basically, that uh, no one had developed. The owners were waiting for the right time to sell it because they knew they could make a lot of money off of it. But it, it was just this land that was covered in asphalt and you know, which is, is worse than just leaving land as it is or, or polluting it like asphalt. Nothing can grow in asphalt, but you can break asphalt up. You know, you can break concrete up, you can break cement up, and then you can start planting stuff in it and you can start making the soil a little better. And what they were doing were, was um, both breaking up the grounds enough that you could have plants there again and also building large raised beds and teaching the, the people in a predominantly black, predominantly poor neighborhood how to grow their own food. And, you know, the children would volunteer, old women would volunteer. You know, anybody who wanted to in that neighborhood could come, both help grow stuff, but also learn about growing stuff so that they could then also grow it in their own backyards, even if that was a very small place. And then um, people would volunteer to, to offer cooking classes, you know, like, hey, we grew this. You, you, maybe you don't know this vegetable. Let me show you how to cook it. Here's 10 different ways that you could eat this vegetable that, uh, you know, will actually turn out to be your favorite thing later on. And, and so for me, it was interesting that so many people who were extremely politically active, uh, who had been out on the streets fighting police, you know, screaming or whatever, kind of all realized at once, hey, this is, you know, it's good that we're, we're reacting to these major problems, but we're only reacting. We're not actually building something that can compete with this awful system. Well, let's concentrate on doing that instead. 
And one of the things that I had heard someone say in relationship to this kind of movement was that they weren't just fighting capitalism. They were trying to outgrow capitalism. And I think, I think that phrase worked, you know, it, it showed so much of it. it it's, it's not just, um, you know, not to use, um, not to use like a popular movie sort of thing. Uh, but uh, there was a line in, in one of the last Star Wars um, where it was like, you know, we win not by fighting what we hate, but by fighting for what we love or, or whatever. And it's more like that. Like if, if we look at everything as a, as a negative, as something that we always have to be in opposition to, we will forget that ultimately there will be a life without capitalism, a life after capitalism. And we need to know how to, to build that now. And then we can also have a lot of fun along the way. You know, it's, as you know, it's, it, it's a lot of work, but it's also a lot of fun growing your own plants. You know, growing your own food is amazing. You know, spring's about to come here. Uh, I've already got my seeds ready. Um, I've already seen that a lot of the stuff that I had planted last year is, is starting to come back. You know, for me, the big sign that life has returned or that spring has returned is when my radishes are, are ready, you know, because those are always the first ones here. And, and it's fun, you know, it's, you see it I'm like, oh, oh, cool. My radishes are ready. Okay, time to plant other stuff. And I'm going to eat some radishes. I'm putting radishes in my salad tonight. And then after a couple of weeks after that, oh, I'm, I want a salad. Well, I'm just going to go outside and get myself a salad. <laughs> you know, um, yeah. It starts to change, I think, not just your, your relationship to political struggle, but also kind of your relationship to yourself and what we are capable of doing. And something I bring up, both in Being Pagan and also in my upcoming book, is that a lot of the problem now is that we have forgotten what we are capable of. And, you know, witchcraft is one part of this. Witchcraft is, is part of remembering, wait, humans can do a lot more than what we're told that we can do. But so is gardening. So is what you're doing. What you're doing is, is oh, hey, I don't need to go to the grocery store to get these things because they grow outside of my door. Um, you know, like we remember how much more we are capable of doing while also learning how too reliant we have become on people that are just trying to profit from us. Well, you know, in your book, read the one being pagan that we've been discussing, and I don't have it, I've got the book in front of me, but I don't remember where the line is. But you speak of getting back to the body, getting back into your body. And I think that, you know, this connection with land and food is one really helpful way to get back to that bodily experience because we are so often divorced from that in our culture, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know. But then there was another thing I was thinking, and that was that, it, you know, food forest, um, they're inherently community-based. It's community oh, yes. building. There's so many things that look like they'd be in opposition to each other that are working with each other to assure the stability of the whole. And I think there's lessons to be learned there for us. You know, as you said, as we outgrow capitalism, do you think there's some lessons that we can learn from the land on how to do so? Yeah, absolutely. Well, let me start with your, your initial point there that uh, this, this is never a solo project. I remember 
I had this idea before I really started looking at what what was possible. Um, I had this idea that you know one person would need to grow all of their own food for a year in order for this to be a sustainable system, but that has never been the case in the history of humanity, as far as we've ever known, because no one ever grows anything alone. Even hunter-gatherer societies, they don't hunt by themselves, <laughs> you know. They and and mm-hmm. it's it, you know it's never the same person who goes out and hunts the animal or stalks the animal, hunts the animal, brings the animal home, skins the animal, butchers it, cooks it. You know, it, it was never one. Per- it, it was a group project. It was part of a community of people these things farming growing your own food hunting you know whatever variants of uh, sustenance that we're talking about this was never a solo activity it was always embedded within community relations you know and that was never just your it was never just a husband wife and children either it was you know the extended family and the neighbors who you know maybe were distantly related and then those neighbors as neighbors and, you know, people got together and also no one had to do everything. It, it wasn't that everybody had to have every single skill, but okay, one person can cook really well. Okay. This other person can grow this food really well, or this other person is incredibly good at gathering wood, you know? Um, mm-hmm. And when we think about, you know, what is possible, it, it, this is, this is maybe another one of the, really huge things that we're missing in modern civilization. I, if you were to go on any social media site right now, you, you can find your friends complaining about not feeling connected, not feeling, um, not feeling happy, not feeling well, not, not feeling listened to. Yeah. The, mm-hmm. the Marxists call this alienation, that we are alienated from each other. Um, you know, another word for that is just disconnected. And we're also disconnected from ourselves. And we're disconnected from the land. We're we're disconnected from even the fact that some foods are even possible to grow. You know, I I think I tell a story in Being Pagan about when I first realized that there was a large rosemary bush growing outside of my front door in Seattle. And I passed it every day. It was a massive rosemary bush. I passed it every day, like to go inside of my home, house. But for some reason, I was always buying rosemary at the organic co-op. And, and a friend of mine said, why did you just pay money for rosemary? And I'm like, well, I mean, I wasn't going to steal it. And he's like, dude, dude, your, your rosemary bush in front of your house. Like, oh, yeah. Oh. Isn't that <laughs> ornamental rosemary or something? Is that the same oh. thing that you eat? <laughs> oh, you no. know, and, and I'm sure, though, that. I cannot be alone in that sort of thing. You know, I, I, I hope everyone is laughing at it because it's definitely funny, but there are a lot of things that we just, we forget are part of the earth around us. And we're also part of the earth around us. And, you know, I, I can go out right now and get several kinds of food that I did not specifically grow that are just growing in the forests around here. You know, the, these things we've become alienated to it and, or alienated from it. And so used to, getting what we need from grocery stores that we've lost something very significant about our relationship to the earth and i think the key and what you're doing is definitely one way of doing this the the key is getting back into the land getting back into body getting back into relationship with yourself with where you live 
with the people around you. And I don't just mean the human people. Uh, I mean all of the other kinds of people as well that we forget are persons, uh, the trees, the birds, uh, the microorganisms, everything. Um, getting back into that, just it's that I think is a real resistance. But by the time you get to that, you don't even think about it as resistance. It's instead, it's like, oh no, this is just the way life is supposed to be. I, I didn't realize this, but yeah, no, this is the most fulfilling way to live. Oh, that um, almost feels like outgrowing resistance. Exactly. Exactly. Like, you know, there, there's a, and, and, and I don't mean to say that we should not yeah. push back on some of the horrible things that happen. Right? We should absolutely push back on those things, but we cannot have that be our only response. Mm -hmm. um, it's a bit like if you're stuck in a bad relationship and it's always bad, then constantly fighting with your partner or abusive partner or whatever you have it, constantly fighting and constantly trying to resist them, you know, that makes sense. But also eventually what you need to do is just get out of there. And that's not easy for everyone. And someone right now who's got several children is managing two jobs and is a single parent, for them, getting more connected to the earth is going to be a lot harder than it would be for somebody who is single and younger and has a great income. But eventually we all need to get out of this abusive relationship where we're constantly resisting something that isn't going away. And instead we need to go away. We need to say, okay, this is not working for me any longer. I need to find new ways of doing this. And fortunately, that can sound overwhelming, except these new ways of doing things are actually extremely very old ways that even our great-grandparents knew how to do. Um, we don't have to look very far for these things. And, and oftentimes, it's, it's not like it's, the, it's people who have died who were doing these things. There are millions and millions of people currently living this way all over the world. We just have to look next to us. I agree. You know, while you were talking, I kept on thinking about the same line from one of your, so I went and found it, a line from your book. <laughs> Is it okay if I read it? Oh read yeah, it? absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. It's, um, it's from Pagan Time, the chapter. And it is on the very uh, first page of that chapter, page 15. And it says, our disconnection from nature, our alienation from the rhythms of the earth and its seasons and most of all, our collective, and I want to underline that word here, collective sense of meaninglessness can all be seen most clearly when we contemplate the moon. Man, you're trying to make me cry because... <laughs> <laughs> but we are talking about how these new ways of thinking, using the model of uh, the land and growing things to, to look at other models um, that can you know, be considered politically, globally, and all kinds of economically, all kinds of other ways. But what really hit me was this uh, collective sense of meaninglessness. And I think that what we're talking about here is some way to drive a collective sense of meaning. Mm, mm. Am I making any sense or am I getting too poetic here? No, um, no, definitely. Um... Yeah, that well, first of all, that collective sense of meaninglessness, you know, it it takes many forms. But I mentioned, uh, I think it, it's on the, like a few pages after that, or maybe even the next page. Um, look. You know, like how often do we even get a chance to look at the sky? 
You know, we, yeah. we've become so busy, so wrapped up in our lives, so stressed, so anxious, so, so afraid, so angry, you know, like so many things happening that we forget even to look up. And mm -hmm. every night for all of the history of humanity, there has been this thing called the moon that is there very brightly on some days and, and not seen on other days um, that, that people have used to place themselves in a larger rhythm of time and relationship. And it's something that we've forgotten now. It's something that, you know, we forget to do this. We, we forget to just look outside um, yeah. to look at this moon and to notice, oh, it's changing. You know, yesterday it was this, tomorrow it's this. Oh, it, it rose in a at a slightly different time. Oh, what's going on? You know, I, I start with that, with the idea, like, you know, the first thing that one needs to do in order to learn to be being pagan is, is to look at the moon, which is the easiest thing on earth to do. And yet, once you start thinking about it, you realize, wow, there are so many things in the way of this. Like, you know, at night I'm watching television or, or scrolling on my my smartphone or, you know, I'm stressing about how bad work was or I'm drinking too much or, or whatever it is. You know, there, there are so many things mm -hmm. that get in the way of this very natural, very ancient observation that is also, you know, it's, it's for a very good reason that witchcraft is associated so heavily with the moon. Um, you know, I would, you know, I would probably suggest that a lot of witches, and not to cast any shade, but I just have seen it happen, observe only certain moons or um, concern themselves only with a particular kind of ritual. And I still feel like that that is divorcing the self away from the experience to some extent. Well, um, what is that phrase? The um, don't look at the finger pointing at the moon. Um, <laughs> there was a time where I would kind of mock some of these things, but then I realized it, it actually took me a long time to do this too. Again, going back to that Rosemary story, like, <laughs> you know, like <laughs> now I have a, a very good relationship with Rosemary, you know, but before I was just walking by and I never once thought, wait, this is something that this is the same Rosemary that I use in certain foods. Mm -hmm. What's happening? And it's so easy to get in this disconnect. And if you've had no one to show you these things at the beginning, it's going to take a little bit longer. But at the same yeah. time, at the same time, that moment when you discover these things is such a profound moment that mm -hmm. in a way I'm a bit envious of, of those who just get to the point where they, they, they can realize, oh, wait, every moon has some influence. Every moon mm -hmm. has some sort of power. Every, you know... It's not just the full moon or the new moon, but wow, okay, the crescent moon, okay, the waxing gibbet, you know, like looking at it like, okay, things change with this, which is, you know, the same way of saying, oh, wow, you know, the world around me is different in spring than it is in summer. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then you start tracing those really subtle changes and suddenly an entire world has opened up to you. And it's such an exciting, thrilling thing. You know, I really hate the term cultivate when it comes to gardening. I'm going to call it gardening for right now. I just hate it because mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's such a colonizing kind of word. Um, but cultivate as if the land doesn't have a vote. <laughs> but, but, but yeah, yeah, I'm with you on the butt. <laughs> I'm with you on the butt. Go ahead. No, no, I want you to go ahead with your butt because I think you're going to do it better than I can. Go for it. I, I mean, uh, the, the cultivate 
because I, I tend to use cultivate very often when I, I think of like the things that we cultivate in ourselves as well. Um, yes. You know, and it, it, it's very related to digging up. I know that from the etymology, but there's, there's also this sense of tending as well mm-hmm. in it. And mm-hmm. when we cultivate a garden, which is really when we tend to garden, we find that we're also cultivating certain things within ourselves as well. Certain mm-hmm. things grow in us as things mm-hmm. grow around us. You know, it's, it's always this reciprocal relationship that sometimes we don't, sometimes it'll take years to understand what really happened, what changed in us, what uh, was dug up, what grew as things were growing around us. But those acts, I think, you know, I, I, I've always liked the word cultivating for that, even though, again, with, you know, so many other words, it's almost every word can, can be said to be tainted. But I've always liked that because there's also the phrase of like cultivating the garden of the soul. Um, mm-hmm. I can't remember who first said that, but I've always liked that as well. Like just tending things within you to yeah. let them grow and to let those things overgrow or outgrow the things about you that you would prefer not to not to be or the things that come to you from outside of yourself that you don't like all of the fears the anxieties the the habits and patterns that we learn from adults from other people those things can be outgrown through cultivating other things instead see i knew you were going to do a great job at the butt and you did <laughs> <laughs> However, <laughs> you did a great <laughs> however, because that is exactly, I wasn't going to do it that well, I was going to say, but I do love it when we're thinking about something as simple as starting to be aware of the moon, because I do think it places you in your body and it helps drive a connection with the land, the land spirits, the trees, who you've been, who you're going to be, your inheritance as a human here, um, as a soul. So that cultivation i think is necessary for us to be able to kind of get past the uh, mindlessness i guess of where society has put us and it's not you know so much our fault until we run into these moments and then realize what is possible then it can be our fault if we don't oh, keep cultivating that this is this is something i just realized as well i i had thought this and then i i just looked this up just to to verify it but um the, the word cultivate and the word cult are from the same roots. And that, that word, um, the Latin word cultus means something different than what we think of in English, especially in America. Like in America, we think of a cult as something dangerous, something, um, something oppressive, something secretive or whatever. But in Roman times and in, in Roman paganism and even outside of Rome, the idea of a cultus was that you were cultivating relationships with certain gods um, or with land spirits or with nymphs or with, you know, what, what have you. So that it was tending a shrine was like tending a garden. It was um, cultivating. Yeah. It was cultivating. You were, and, and, and so there's also the phrase that, you know, culting, cultivating a relationship with. You know, if you cultivate a relationship with the land spirits or with the land or with gods, you're tending to that relationship. You are saying, hey, I'm going to take care of this relationship. I'm going to add to it. You know, am I going to put some compost here? Am I going to 
move some plants that aren't doing well here into somewhere else. Like, you know, this constant attention. And I think, I think attention is, is also something that, you know, one in modern society where our attention is always being stolen from us. It's always, someone is always demanding our attention. ADHD is kind of the condition of modern society now because so many things are demanding that we give them attention. And, and of course, our attention is always exhausted that we have no attention to give to ourselves or, the, or to the things that we really love. But then cultivating attention, cultivating, giving attention to the things that we've, we decide matter more than anything else. That's, that's um, sexy. Yeah, I, I, I like that. And I mean, this is just, just from that one word. We could go off on hundreds of other words. But yeah. maybe I, you and I both love yeah. words and etymology and all the historicity and the meaning that pops up. So yeah, I, I don't enjoy the way big ag is using the word cultivate. But then again, you know, I'm a big fan of reappropriation. And, and I don't even that think word. They're, they're not cultivating anyway. <laughs> you know? Like, <laughs> no, no, they're not. They're, 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 they're ravaging. They're, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> ravaging you know? and monoculture, which we all know it. And that's another lesson from the land. Monoculture is not healthy for the earth. It is horrible. Um, you know, it's a, a process of extraction. It's not a process of giving back. And in the kind of gardening that I do, it's more of a polyculture, more of a community sort of um, out in the garden. And to cultivate in that way means to also add in those things that would shade the roots in the hot summer, you know, of a bigger plant mm -hmm. or um, have a semiotic relationship with another plant. So yeah, I think the way they use cultivation, it, it's they're, they're misappropriating the term altogether. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, I wanted and, to tell actually, you, oh, go, go ahead. ahead. No, you go ahead. You go ahead. Well, I wanted to tell you, you know, I have a coven. I've had a coven for a long time. And I think that coven has sort of become the C word in witchcraft but um mine is significantly um different and we all kind of work together i'm only a student there you know but when a new witch comes to me and says uh, what would you advise for me to really start digging in and becoming more aware and waking up my sensibilities and getting more connected and i always and they think it's no big deal until they know it is a big deal i suggest that in their daily journals and in their daily processes for them to try to note what phase the moon is in mm. just mm. that simple just draw it on your journal or say to yourself oh how interesting because i garden by the moon read oh um, yes oh yes you know i garden by the moon so i'm always thinking this way always thinking, okay, these are the root vegetables. So we're going to go with a good wane, you know, pull down and, and it tends to work. But what I've noticed is over time, and I suppose I have cultivated this in myself, I no longer have to look at an app or mm -hmm. a calendar. I just know. Yeah. But, you know? And, and of course you remember where it was the last time you saw it. And yeah. it's like, okay, so this is going to be, okay, so two days afterwards. So, all right, so it's new or, okay, it's going to be full or, yeah. And, and, and that's something, 
at, at first when I knew someone else who could do that, I was like, what, how, how do you do that? You know, and this is, this is before, this is before people had cell phones. Yes, there was a time before cell phones, everyone. Yes. Um, right. <laughs> and uh, and then and then when we had cell phones, they couldn't do anything except uh, except call people. <laughs> but um, you know, and it was like, oh, how do you know that? And it's like, well, I just do because I, I look at it all the time. How do you not know where it is? You know, and I was like, oh, right. like, How is that? But it's it's just like what we choose to 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 give attention to. Like I again going back to that rosemary, I never gave attention to that rosemary. And then suddenly, mm -hmm. when I gave attention to it, like this entire world exploded in front of me, like, wow, wow, rosemary, you know? And it's the same with the moon. Like, it is useful, I think, for some people to start with the symbolism of the moon. But the problem is, when we get wrapped up too much in the symbols, we forget that the moon is a, is, experience, you know, is an experience as well. And that the symbols are only... Yeah, it's a lot like, I guess, tarot as well. You know, if you are only reading the interpretations of the tarot cards without actually looking at it, you're missing something. Or if you're focusing on the idea of a partner or someone you love instead of actually spending time with them, you're missing something huge. So, you know, it's, it's understandable that we get, you know, we're living kind of in an age of symbols and symbols that don't even really refer to anything any longer. Um, right. But They've lost their touch, you know, their touchstone to whatever that experience Exactly. Was. Exactly. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I think a lot can open up for people with just that, that initial experience. And, and, and they don't all have to start gardening by the moon. You know, they don't all no. have to do this. Like they, it's just, no. but the, you know, there are subtle things that, that happen where you realize, wow, I have a lot more energy on certain moons than I do on others. Or yeah. I feel kind of sad and depressed on certain moons and I just want to stay in bed or I just want to clean my room and be alone. And when you start paying attention to that, you just start seeing, oh, well, other things influence my mood too. Huh. Yeah. Okay. I read you some start of that. Yeah. What, one of the things in your book that just it keeps on pulling back up for me is being in the body and you were... Was it your book or another thing I read where you were speaking of, um, you were with a, a past uh, friend, lover, whatever, and you would walk past certain places and uh, you would yes. have the same argument. I mean, do you want to tell that? But to really sink into the experience and be yeah. present in your body, you start to notice these things. Go ahead. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, so this would have been about, I guess, 15 years ago. It was a... Um, uh, maybe 10 years ago, it was uh, a boyfriend and I, we were together for about three years and neither of us drove and there was a grocery store that was relatively close to our, our place in Seattle. So we would walk there together. Mm -hmm. And um, whenever we would walk there, you know, do our shopping and then we'd start walking home and we'd always have these really weird arguments to the point where we both kind of decided we didn't we didn't really want to go to the grocery store together because for some reason after we were shopping, we'd always have the same arguments where it was like, you know, Hey, you're not, you're not giving me a, enough attention. Um, we both would feel like this, like that the other was not giving each other the, the amount of attention that they wanted, that we both felt abandoned. We both felt um, unseen and, you know, and underneath that was, was a sense of, of loneliness and disconnection. And, uh, 
we we both noticed it i think at the same time where it was maybe the eighth or ninth time that we were having this kind of argument after walking home and we both looked up and we realized where our argument started every single time and it was in front of a very large publicly run retirement home and you could see inside of the apartments they they were all very tiny and a lot of the the people there were you know quite feeble um you know couldn't really move up and and so they were they were mostly laying in beds watching television in apartments that were practically closets very tiny oh, oh. and of course you know so you have you have a building of of maybe 200 or 300 people who are old and who are feeling abandoned and and sad and invisible um all all concentrated in one place and then of course every single time we would walk by we would have these same feelings and we suddenly realized oh these are not our feelings we're picking up on the feelings of this place we're picking mm-hmm. up on the feelings of all of these people here and it was very powerful because one you know of course we we stopped having those arguments when we walked by there that but two that was, i think was the first time that we really noticed wow there's a lot of really sad lonely people in there you know and there was just like this moment to kind of honor that collective feeling that they were having like wow okay well you know what i'm going to call my grandmother right now so that she does not feel alone you know it it, it opened us yeah. up to kind of a new realization and it was just you know we were walking through a part of the land where that was the dominant feeling and we were picking it up and you know of course one could use kind of new age or um pseudoscientific like psychoanalytic language like oh we were picking up on their energies or whatever i don't think we need to do any of that instead just kind of honor that wow yeah there were you know several hundred persons there including the land feeling this and yeah. and that's what it is so you're um, just being aware and, of your experience yeah yeah exactly yeah. and and again like not not all of our experiences are are from inside of us <laughs> you know like mm-hmm. some places when you and and you notice this i think particularly in land especially when you're walking through a city and especially a city where you also have access to to somewhat wild parks so you know you walk through the park and you feel one thing and then you walk by certain streets or down certain alleys and you feel other things and then sometimes you walk by a place or you realize there's a place that you refuse to walk by and you don't know why but every single time you get close to it you take another you take another way you know and then there are other places that you find that you always walk slower you know that is the land itself that is those are the moods of the land that is the the land speaking to you and we don't always know how to how to understand what we're hearing but but we hear it anyway. Right. So we might as well attempt to understand our relationship with it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Right? Yes. And, yeah. and I think, I, I believe actually fully that this is something anybody can do. You don't need, um, you don't need to buy a, a stack of books and you don't need witch blood or, or any of the other things that, that people tend to talk about. It's something that any human can do depending on what we choose to cultivate about ourselves and what we choose not to cultivate. Okay, well, this is one of the sexiest conversations I've ever had. Woohoo! <laughs> Justin, I, I hope it. you're enjoying this. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> I'm sure 
I'm sure he is. You know, <laughs> Justin and I did um, our own little interview, and it was going to be, you know, about friendship and how people change over 20, 25 years and how to still, like, have that connection, whatever friendship that is, if, if you want to or if it's healthy. And the microphone for him failed, and we spoke for almost two hours, so we lost it. Oh. Um, I know. We're going to do it again. We're going to do it again. And it's really nice to hear it from a, a Christian perspective, too. I'm not one of those people who just wholesale, you know, I don't know. I've, I've seen a lot of, um, I guess, anger and antagonism about Christians, and I totally understand why. Believe me, I live in the Bible belt. I understand mm -hmm. why. I've got a lot of anger as well. I mean, there's no way around it. It's been a, well, at least where I live, a very destructive force. But I think that, you know, I was talking to my good friend, Adam who is the pastor of Clackamas United Church of Christ. He's the one who does all those really cool signs outside that says Jesus had two dads and okay. like he's amazing. I did an interview with him last year and he just, he loves witches. He just loves us and uh, open-minded fella. And he said that Christianity was really missing out on this uh, nature connection, this mm. tending of the land, this, um, reverence from where we came that kind of thing and that was one thing he really hoped to see build and the well let's be honest the ruins of um, the heyday of christianity <laughs> do you know it. about the um okay so uh, one you know i i was not a i was not a big fan of christianity when i was living in the united states it is very difficult to kind of come yeah. to a truce with it while being in the United States. My yes. feelings about it are, are significantly different now that I'm living in Europe because the, the Christianity that, that you see here is, it's not evangelical. No one's trying to convert anyone. And what's also interesting too is a lot of, like there are shrines everywhere. Of course, most of them are to Mary, but you know, if you go to these shrines, I, I guess it's about a mile from my home. There's a very old oak, um, several hundred years old. And at the base of it, there is a shrine that was built to Mary, Queen of Heaven. And mostly, mostly older women go up there and they light candles and they leave flowers and they'll ask for something, you know, and, and they never ask for themselves. Like, that's not one of those shrines where you say, hey, I want money. <laughs> you know, instead it's like, a, hey, you know, my granddaughter uh, had her fourth miscarriage. Can you help with this? And, and in one way you look at it and like, okay, they're going to a Catholic Mary shrine. But if you just, if, if you're standing in front of it and you're just looking at the Catholic Mary shrine, you, you can miss the other thing that they're doing, which is they're going to the foot of a almost thousand year old oak. Yum. And they're saying these prayers. And that's what people were doing before Christianity came here. They were going mm -hmm. to the oaks. They were going to the, the springs. They were asking the rivers. They were asking the forests for these mm -hmm. things. So they're still doing it, even though now there's, you know, it's branded differently. But my experience with this is, has definitely changed my feelings about Christianity significantly. Like, I'm still not a fan. But also, I'm I'm not angry at it or anything. I, I understand that there's a, a lot of meaning that can be gotten from it. And I do, I do also know a lot of people who are deeply Christian who have been focusing on 
returning to right relationship with the land. You know, there's there are multiple ways of interpreting the biblical stories about creation and, and all of that. And very often in America, the dominionism, the idea that humans are supposed mm-hmm. to have dominion over the earth, it tends to be the predominant thing. But it's not always been the only way that people have looked at it. And, and this is interesting, actually. There is an abbess, uh, Hildegard, Hildegard von Bingen. She was the... <laughs> you you would consider her a witch if you did not know she was also a Christian. You know, if you did not see the saint part in front of her name, and if you started reading her stuff, you'd be like, whoa. whoa. Okay, so you're talking <laughs> about crystal magic and herbal healing, and wow, okay, this is witchcraft. And and back then, the, the distinctions between them were not so strong. <laughs> you know, it was easy for those things to kind of blend in with each other. And I think what has happened now in modern Christianity is the same thing that's happened, you know, in other modern things, which is the strict separation, this need to keep things separate, to divide people, to divide ideas, to be this or that, kind of this binary, you know, and... I've said many times, it's like, it's great that we challenge uh, binaries in some things, but we should challenge binaries everywhere. The, yeah. you are either this or that, or this is either pagan or it is not, or this is either Christian or it is not. Like, you know, life is never black and white. And it, I, I find it's very helpful if we expand these, like when we interrogate binaries to, to say, well, wait. How else have I been thinking in binaries? Because binaries come from computers. You know, like a computer is all off and on. All of these switches, or, you know, we call them switches, but in, in strings of on-offs that determine what it is doing. You know, this is, this is a modern logic. It's not a ancient logic, and it's definitely not an indigenous or a land-based logic. You know, things can be more than one thing at the same time. And, and for Christianity, I think that's my relationship to Christianity here has has broadened because I stopped thinking in the binaries of the kind of American binary thing. You're either you know you're either a sinner and you're going to hell, or you are saved. <laughs> you know, yeah. when I when I stopped thinking about it that way, and then realized, oh, there are actually lots of Christians who don't think of that as that way as well. Then it was a lot easier for me to see it as something that was important to other people it's it's not important to me you know i I was a christian when i was younger and i escaped from it and i'll never go back to that but i can now kind of hold the sense of meaning that other people get from it without needing to make a judgment about it you're reminding me so much and i know i take everything back to the land and i apologize for that but um the black walnut you know, yeah, I didn't realize. And, and so I planted a black walnut tree really close to my pear trees a long time ago. Yeah. This is before I got my master gardener certification and and learned more. And I just watched my pear just wither. Mm -hmm. Um, because as we know now, it will send out enzymes and such and compounds to sort of, you know, fight off any other, (laughs) It, mm-hmm. it wants it wants to be the only one. I always sort of, yeah. um, please forgive me any Christian listeners, but see the black walnut as very much like that. Yeah. Um, well, and, and, and there, there are pine trees that do that as well. Um, yeah, there are. There are a couple of mm-hmm. 
And and what's interesting is is that is very suitable in a damaged land area. You know, if yep. like if they need to if if nothing else can grow in there or very little can grow in there, but these things can because you know, a walnut, it's a walnut. Walnuts are very strong. They can provide something there and and by doing that, you know, they push other things out for a while at least. But, you know, at the same time walnuts like feed things. You know, there there is purpose right. in it, but we also have to remember that there's usually something uh, I, I don't want to say deficient, but there's usually something going on in the land there where that walnut was needs able to, to be there and was yeah. able to thrive and was able to kind of outcompete everything else. And you know, and, and oftentimes there's some sort of underlying damage. It's very similar to what we see with uh, or what I used to see with blackberries all the time in the Pacific Northwest. You know, those blackberries are there for a reason. Um, mm-hmm. No, they're not supposed to be there, and 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 that's that's in quotes. Um, right. You know, they're not quote unquote native to there, but they grow in places where the land is so damaged that mm-hmm. if they were not there, then really the birds would have absolutely nothing to eat, and yeah. the ground itself would wash away. So what oftentimes mm-hmm. happens is okay, this is. This is something that was needed. Now let's figure out how to make the the grounds, the earth, the soil better so that the blackberry can at least pull away some where it doesn't have to be the only thing that is there. You can actually have blackberry coexist with other plants, but you know, you, you have to fix the underlying condition that is causing an entire area to do. There's some something has gone wrong that blackberry is trying to heal. Yeah. I think it's a really interesting analogy and something I don't want to completely walk away from. Um, I mean, in this podcast, yes, but later on, I'm going to keep on thinking about this because I think it's an interesting analogy. Uh, to figure out why we are in the position we're in actually matters a bit, especially if we're going to outgrow something as uh, mm-hmm. degradating as. Uh, yeah, I, I I, there's something else I think Blackberry taught me as well. You know, and it, it was a good friend of mine who. And this was her hobby. She 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 had a full time um, social work job, but when she was done with her job, she'd she'd go take care of places. That was you know, even though they weren't necessarily her property, she just loved like, oh, okay, let me see what I can do to help this land here. And mm-hmm. you know, she would never have called herself a witch or a pagan or anything else like that, but she was the witchiest, most pagan person I knew, mm-hmm. and. One of the things she taught me when I was trying to do restoration in a forest that had, um, it was once part of a park and um, it uh, it had been abandoned and it was destroyed in many places and a lot of blackberry had come up. And she had warned me when I was trying to get out of it that I should never take all of the blackberry out at once. Um, That if I try to do that, then I will actually make the problem worse. Instead, what you do is you cut back some of it and then you start putting in plants that can do the same job that Blackberry is trying to do, but can do it on a longer scale and a more beneficial scale. So, you know, you have a large Blackberry patch, you you pull back one third of it and, mm-hmm. you know, and then you plant other things there. And then after a while, you pull back another third of it until eventually, you know, you can take out the whole thing or almost all of it. But I think the lesson I learned from that 
you know, it, it doesn't just apply to BlackBerry, but all of these other things, these habits, these reliances, these, you know, even addictions, like the trying to quit using your, your smartphone cold turkey is very difficult, you know, but, <laughs> but what, what often happens is, is if you try to pull back on it a bit and then put something else in its place, yeah. then you start realizing, oh, you know, this is more sustainable. And I've noticed this too with addiction in general. Um, you know, if you're an alcoholic or, or addicted to anything, if you just try to quit and you don't put something better in that place, you're going to go back. And then you're going to get upset at yourself that, that you, mm-hmm. you backslid or, or fell back into it. And it's like, but of course you did because there was that addiction or, or whatever, this, this thing that was not very good for you was still fulfilling a purpose it was covering over something just like blackberry covers over something um that needed to heal now it wasn't healing it but it was at least kind of protecting it a little bit as a as a band-aid might but eventually that needs to heal and if you don't do something to heal it then all you can do is is keep putting band-aids on things or or keep taking medications that that dull the pain but never fix the underlying problem and and this i think can can be said about many of these things like for example for if your listeners are okay i want to start gardening you know i want to have some sort of relationship to the land it's like okay great do not under any circumstances go out and buy a farm right now right. <laughs> you know unless you already <laughs> know what you're doing because what's going to happen is you're just going to get this large piece of land and and you're like oh, okay I don't know what I'm going to do. And then you're going to feel really depressed and you're going to give up and you're never going to try again. Instead, exactly. like, you know, do you have a balcony in your apartment? Can you grow yeah. a couple of plants out there? Great. Yeah. Do that. You know, start yeah. there, start little bits. You don't, you don't need to replace everything you're eating with stuff that you can grow outside immediately, but you could commit to something really simple. as like, okay, all of the herbs that I use in my cooking this year, I'm going to grow myself. I'll grow all of my parsley. I'll grow all of my basil. I, I will learn how to do this. I will learn how to, to cultivate these things. Mm-hmm. And, and I'll see what happens. And then, you know, you might go from that point and say, okay, now I'm going to try all of my own salad this year. Or I'm going to, you know, try something else. Like, you do not have to start all at once. And you cannot start all at once. If you, if you no. try to just break all of these habits, all of these, these connections to these larger systems that are breaking you, then you're just going to break again. A forest is not grown overnight. A garden is not grown overnight. Things take time and they have their seasons for it. And you just have to start where you are. Yeah, I agree. And that really does. I, I usually tell people just go like chives. Chives are so damn easy. You just put them Oh, yes, the they are. Yeah. You know, start with chives. Um, and then from there, move forward because you won't have any choice and this is kind of important, but to be still for a moment, to just Mm -hmm. be still in that moment when you see them pop up under the soil line, when you just see them growing day to day, it's like watching the moon again, it's phases. And as that changes, you change too. It's a slow process. You know, I know we have to go, but I wanted to, to throw this out there as we do. I love what you said. Like if you are just trying to start somewhere in your book, being pagan, and I love that that was like a verb feel to it, you know, mm, being mm, 
pagan, which I think that's the only way to, to do. <laughs> it's a daily thing, you know, a constant, uh, it's not stasis. It's this beautiful, you know, there is a word in French and I'm going to butcher it, but I love it the most. And it's sacré, mm -hmm. which means both sacred and holy and bloody and damned, depending on yeah. how you... So I love... <laughs> and you did pronounce that correctly. I, I mean... Uh, I, Holy yeah. shit. Holy yeah, yeah, shit. sacré. Yeah. Sacré. Yeah. Sacré. Uh, that is yeah. my favorite word um, mm -hmm. in any language. But the process of watching something grow and experiencing that for me will always be this uh, push-pull. But one of the things I learned about the sacred was that it has to move. Once you uh, hold yes. it in your hand and try to keep it still, it sort of becomes a monument. Mm -hmm. um, you know, there's nothing wrong with monuments or icons or headstones, but they're not alive. Yeah. So this whole idea of the sacred being this moving thing is why I love growing things so much because it teaches me that lesson over and over and over. And my son, uh, he's 31. That dates me pretty hard, doesn't it? And um, <laughs> he's super fucking cool. And he's agnostic, you know, finding his way. And he told me this beautiful story last year. Or, what, no, it was the year before, Reed. And it was right in the heart of the pandemic. And down here, people weren't wearing masks. And it was very dangerous for me have a heart condition. So he kind of gave up his whole world and all of his savings to come home to the farm for two years. Mm. Um, very big uh, sacrifice on his part. Although he doesn't look at it that way because it taught him to be still. And the story is he, he used to walk through this beautiful old uh, forest, Tuskegee National Forest. Okay. Which has a lot of history, a lot of haunts, you know. But he mm -hmm. used to just walk through, you know, purposeful. We're going on a hike. We're going to, you know, I don't know, burn calories, exercise the dogs, whatever. You get the idea. Mm -hmm. During the pandemic, he stopped at a tree and he'd never done this before. And he just sat there and he said, you know what? I'm going to, I'm just going to sit here for like an hour and just try to like take in everything around me. And, um, that day, he found all these wonderful mushrooms. Can't remember the variety. <laughs> some edible, some not. <laughs> some edible only once. You know the old joke. <laughs> but <laughs> Right? <laughs> but he didn't notice them before. And he had walked this path for years. And he didn't notice the, the type of wood that was there. And he didn't notice all of the rabbits. He didn't notice. And he came back home and he said, Mom, mind blown. All I mm. had to do was sit and be still. Mm. Mm, that's beautiful. Disconnect to connect, right? Disconnect to connect. And Aye. suddenly he was really in his body, but that's just the thing. You know, we talk about land as bodies, a body of land, a body of water. We are also a body of something. Yeah. And to yeah. just be still with it. It just opened up so much for him. So I think my advice, you know, to add to your advice about the moon would be just go be still somewhere. Mm. Mm. Don't have any expectations. Don't take a notebook. 
shut the hell up, sit down (laughs) (laughs) and just be a body of land, of water. Just chill. Do you have any more advice before we go? Um, no, actually, that's all really good. But I want to add one thing because you were talking about chives being a good thing to start. Um, I know not everybody eats radishes, but if you want instant gratification, mm. if you want instant gratification, you just want to plant some seed and watch it grow just to just to, you know, whet your appetite to it. Radishes are one of the quickest and the, the most instant gratification plants that you can ever do. So if you like radishes, start there. Uh, if you don't like radishes, then um, maybe try salads because salads also come up. But, you know, r- radish seeds will take three or four days, a week at most for most people. So you put them in, you kind of forget about them. Suddenly you've got a plant growing. And then a couple of weeks later, you've got a radish. <laughs> so if, okay, if though, it all like, seems... That is the most beautiful wisdom I've heard in a long time. <laughs> Just start easy. It's okay. You don't have to. Yeah. You don't have to do everything at once. None of us yeah. ever will do everything at once. Just start where you can. Try it. Don't be mad at yourself. Don't listen to the kind of overcultural idea that you're doing everything wrong. Like, just be. Just try. And it's a playful thing too. Don't. Don't take mm-hmm. it too seriously. You know, it's playful. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, be a kid again. Go put a seed in the ground and see what happens. Our favorite thing is children, right? When we did that like in third grade and saw a green bean make up. Oh, yeah. It was cra- <laughs> oh, yeah. It was like, what the fuck? <laughs> this is insane. I loved it. I loved it as a child. By the way, on radishes, their greens are fantastic. They are. Radish, they are. radish greens. So, yeah, I love it. I love you, and thank you so much for being on the podcast today to talk about this. Thank you so much for having me. This has been amazing. Uh, when is your book going to be released? Oh, uh, that's uh, September 12th, I think. There, there should be a release notice at some point. I'm not sure how that's going. I, I, I just got the copy edited manuscript back from the publisher, and I have to make some final approvals uh, on that. But... It's that fun part, right? Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Slodge through it. The, the yeah. creativity is there. So I will put links to everything on the podcast. But read this friendship. It, it's been a lot to me. And thank you for being here. Thank you so much, too. And I'll make sure that, uh, that my readers get access to this, too. Like, I'll, I'll post a link up to this. Maybe you'll get some new listeners. <laughs> you never oh. know. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, stay on the podcast with me for a minute so I can say goodbye, then I can say goodbye to you properly. Absolutely. Um, And and thanks for listening, Justin. (laughs) (laughs) We love you, Justin. We love you. Yeah, we love you. (laughs) All right. Love y'all like chicken. Talk to you next week. Bye-bye. All right, I think it was good. Do you you think it was good? That was so much fun. Y'all have been listening to the Southern Fried Witch Podcast. Come back around next week for a little bit more magic from the Deep South.